Hello. Hello. Well, Jake, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Well, I just want to welcome you to episode two of uh, John Banks' podcast blog. And we're, we're here in international headquarters in beautiful downtown Nashville. Downtown Nashville. We were so overwhelmed by the support on the first podcast, Jake, that we thought we had to bring this back. Uh, as quickly as possible. So you're going to be our very first guest on the John Banks' Civil War blog podcast. And just so you know, Jake is the Director of Interpretation at the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum in Washington. And he also has a very, very popular blog called Winning History. And recently he started with three other Young Historians, a blog called Pennsylvania and the Civil War, which I'm very excited about. And we'll talk about that here in a couple minutes. First, I wanted to um, reintroduce myself. Uh, I didn't mention this on my first podcast uh, just the other day, but I am a longtime journalist uh, with the Dallas Morning News ESPN. Uh, I now work for a sports site called Yard Barker. Uh, I write for Civil War Times. I have a regular column called Rambling, also write for America's Civil War, and have written for New York Times and other publications. And I've written a couple books on the Civil War, Connecticut Yankees at Antietam, and Hidden History of Connecticut Union Soldiers. I also have a Civil War blog and a uh, Facebook presence. And uh, about 775 years ago, I graduated from West Virginia University in Morgantown, with a degree in journalism. And Jake, today was a very eventful day at uh, International Headquarters here in downtown Nashville. Uh, I'm three blocks from the Honky Tonks on Broadway. And for those of you out there who have been to Nashville before, the Honky Tonks can get quite lively at night. And uh, like I said, I live three blocks from, from the Honky Tonks on Broadway. At 3.15 a.m. this morning, somebody pulled a fire alarm here at beautiful, luxurious uh, John Banks Civil War Blog International Headquarters. And uh, it was quite an unusual scene, Jake, uh, going outside on the street with, oh, I'd say about 150 other people. And I got to see folks uh, dressed in their Winnie the Pooh jammies and other very unusual attire that you typically would not see during the daytime. And uh, it was also an opportunity for me to briefly visit with neighbors that, who I never knew I had. That was quite an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> Civil War-like, um, over the weekend, I had an opportunity to drive two hours to the Chickamauga battlefield in Georgia. And for those of you who have never been there, the Chickamauga battlefield is really terrific. And I ended up uh, biking about 35 miles on the battlefield, went up to Snodgrass, Snodgrass Hill where George, General George Thomas earned his nickname, the Rock of Chickamauga. And I can think of no better way to see a battlefield than by bike. And the Chickamauga battlefield is really terrific in the fact that you don't have to be a uh, 
professional cyclist or, or, or ready for the Tour de France next weekend, that it's a very moderate ride, very flat for the most part, and extremely enjoyable. So, Jake, I know that you've never been there before, but would like to get there. So I highly encourage when you do go there, take a bike or borrow a bike because it'll be a very, very interesting experience. So there you go. Enough about me and my bike riding experience um, experiences. Uh, I've gotten to know Jake over the years. I've been an avid follower of his Winning History blog. And we first met, I think it was probably five years ago, Jake, I believe, at Antietam. Yeah. And we met four, four, yeah, four or five years ago at the Pry House. Yeah, and, and you worked there for a time. So before we get into what you're currently doing at the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum, uh, why don't you tell us about your experience at the Philip Pry House, and maybe you can enlighten the readers on what you showed me that a uh, very enjoyable day four years ago. Yeah, thank you, John, for for having me on. I'm I'm really excited about this. Love the love the new podcast. Uh, think that the uh, possibilities are endless with this, and uh, really honored to be your your first guest. Uh, yeah, we uh, a couple years back um, we did go out for a visit to to Pry House. Um, the Pry House Field Hospital Museum is operated by the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, which is based out of Frederick, Maryland. And that, they, that museum also runs the, missing, the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum in D.C. Um, so I work between all three of the different sites, uh, though I'm stationed now in, in D.C. at the Missing Soldiers Office. And I get to uh, go out to the Pry House every so often, and I have to say it's, it's one of my favorite places uh, regardless of, you know, whether it's on a Civil War battlefield or not, it, it's the Pry House is just a really unique place. Um, was the kind of a forward operating, you know, there's arguments about whether or not it was George McClellan's true headquarters during the Battle of Antietam. Ah, uh, yes. It's a, it's a home. It, it was a farm. Uh, it plays a crucial role in the Battle of Antietam as the, as the location where uh, George McClellan spends a, a large amount of time in the vicinity of the Pry House on the day of the battle. Um, it's also, uh, more importantly for, for my job, talking about medical history, it's also where Jonathan Letterman, the medical director of the Army of the Potomac, uh, oversees his, the institution of his new plan, what becomes known as the Letterman Plan, uh, which changes the game uh, in terms of battlefield medicine and means that Soldiers are evacuated faster off the battlefield than ever before. Wounded soldiers make sure that they get the best health care possible. And there were several hundred patients treated uh, in the Pry family's barn just down the hill from the house, as well as two officers, uh, two high-ranking officers treated in the house itself. Uh, Joseph Hooker for his foot wound um, that he got in the morning of the Battle of Antietam and Israel Richardson with a really nasty chest wound caused by Confederate artillery near the Bloody Lane. Uh, Israel Richardson uh, does, uh, about a month and a half after the battle, pass away as a result of, of his injury and pneumonia that set in afterwards um, in the Pry House itself. Uh, so it's a really, it's, a, it's quite an incredible place. I'm sure, John, you have some comments about your experience there, but it's, it's quite an impressive place. We have a museum set up there. Um, next time you're at Antietam National Battlefield, highly recommend coming out to the Pry House. Uh, we are open out there um, through December uh, from 
uh, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and we do guided tours on Saturdays. Yeah, that's one of my favorite places to stop in the uh, every every visit that I have at Antietam. I go to two places. I go to this all the time. I go to the cemetery, and I always stop by the Pry House because it's such a beautiful home. And what's intriguing about it to me, Jake? Maybe you can tell us before we get into the Claire Barton stuff. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about Antietam because it's my favorite battlefield. But the house that you see was reconstructed or not reconstructed. It burned sometime in the, was it in the late 20th century? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. There's a, a severe fire in the 1970s um, that, uh, that uh, burned the building, significant portions of the building um, almost down to the brick. Uh, it was a, it was a very severe fire. Um, but actually out of that fire, um, it, it basically destroyed all of the additions that had been made, all of the, the uh, changes that had been made since the 1860s. And so the building had recently come in at the time of the fire, the building had recently come into the hands of the park service. And so they were basically able to go back to the start um, and, and go back to the original plans as, as best they could and, and recreate what the building would have looked like in the mid 19th century. Jake, can you tell us about um, I know there's an interesting story about the Pry children and the room, the bedroom where uh, the second floor, correct? The second floor yeah. bedroom where Israel Richardson lay wounded until I think it was early November 1862 when he died. But tell us a story about the Pry children. Yeah, so Philip, Philip and Elizabeth Pry, um, they built the house in 1844. Um, they had a, a bunch of kids. Um, at the time of the Civil War, there's six kids. Uh, and some of them were pretty young um, at, the time, uh, at, the, at the time of the battle. Uh, and so you can imagine the traumas they experience. You know, the, there's, uh, their home is taken over. Uh, most of their property is destroyed as a result of the Union Army being there. And then when they return, uh, they were taken away. Um, Elizabeth Pry took the kids to stay with relatives in, in Keatysville, so about a mile away. And uh, when they returned, you know, you can imagine all these kids coming back to a, a war-torn landscape. Uh, their barn is filled with hundreds of, of wounded soldiers, and their house—they have a uh, a dying man uh, living in their upstairs uh, in agony in, in their upstairs bedroom. Uh, and he does linger there um, until early November. He passes away in, in the fir- first days of November, um, and that really traumatizes the kids. Uh, and there's a story that's passed down through the Pry family uh, that that room, that upstairs bedroom, where Israel Richardson died from his wounds and, and pneumonia, uh, stayed out of that room, believed that it was haunted, um, and uh, that Elizabeth Pry at Christmas time or when she was making snacks um, and cookies and sweets and that sort of thing, that she would hide them in that room because she knew that the kids. Were That's there. a tremendous story, and I remember you telling that to me, and I and I just stood there and in uh in wonder as jake very eloquently told that story to me i think we shot a very brief video that i posted somewhere either on facebook or my blog or or whatever and the other intriguing uh uh thing about that place is that jake allowed me and hopefully you can tell people (laughs) you're allowed to say this jake i was allowed to go up into the (laughs) attic and they have a well i'll let you tell the story jake go ahead there's a little hatch in the attic yeah, there's a little hatch in the attic. It's uh, it's pretty restricted because it's kind of a it's, it's 
it's not a, an ideal uh, spot to be taking visitors, but uh, there, there have been some, you know, times uh, that, that we've had it open. Um, there's a roof hatch um, that gives you one of the best views possible of the, of the Antietam battlefield uh, from up there. And, and there's another story that comes down to the Pry family that the hatch was used by McClellan, uh, that he went up into there and looked out over the battlefield um, and that that was used during the battle uh, to, to look out over the battlefield. Uh, we do know that there were all over the property because of the, the, it was the high ground uh, east of Antietam Creek that there were uh, officers set up there. Uh, McClellan was up there with uh, spy glasses and opera glasses looking at the battle as it was being fought. And uh, another element that doesn't get always remembered from the Battle of Antietam is the fact that on all of those hills kind of east of Antietam Creek, out of range of Confederate artillery, uh, there were hundreds of spectators who gathered uh, to watch, uh, watch the battle as it played out um, from probably one of the best vantage points that anyone ever saw a Civil War battle play out. Um, an artist, uh, Edwin Forbes, who was at the Pry House as well, uh, commented later, he called it the, the most picturesque battle of the war. Um, that's what he remembered from, from seeing the battle from the vantage point at the Pry House. Yeah, and the, uh, what we call the overlook there, um, which, which does even to this day, though there are a lot more trees, uh, looks out and gives you one of the best natural views that you can have. Of and of course, battle. Jake, there's a very famous photo that many years ago purportedly was, uh, was identified as actual, uh, it was taken in, I believe by Alexander Gardner in 1862 from the ridge right there by the Pry House that many people thought was uh, showed battle smoke on the battlefield. In the foreground, there's a gentleman, uh, probably a soldier, holding field glasses. It's not actually smoke. You, you, you know what I'm talking about, right, Jack? Yeah, yeah. It shows, um, it shows a big chunk of the, uh, of the Army's artillery reserve, um, which sat just, below the, uh, sat just below the Pry House. The Pry House sits up on a, on a ridge, and just below the house along the road towards Sharpsburg, uh, there was a huge, you know, uh, a ton of artillery um, kind of waiting in reserve down there and also men in camp just, just below there. That's kind of the position of the Fifth Corps of the Union Army during, the, during much of the battle is just below the Pry House towards what's known as the Middle Bridge. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, the, the photographer, which was, was Gardner, uh, takes a photo of the Pry House um, and also goes up to the ridge and gives a, a, a perspective of you know, part of the battlefield uh, far in the rear. Um, but yeah, confused people for many years because it is, does have the appearance of what looks like like some kind of battle smoke or, or something hanging down in the valley. And listeners, so, if you would like to see that picture that Jake and I are talking about, just go to the Library of Congress site. Uh, just Google Library of Congress Civil War. And in the search terms, you can put Alexander Gardner Antietam. And that'll be among the photos that you'll be able to see there. It's quite the interest, interesting photo. And I first came upon it uh, in William Frasinito's uh, excellent book uh, on Antietam, in which he dissects many of the photos that were taken there by Gardner and, and others uh, at Antietam. Well, Jake, uh, you know, Clara Barton, obviously, she was at Antietam in 1862. And there are many famous stories about her, her service there, including the uh, apparently tending a soldier and having a bullet go through her blouse or sleeve or whatever. So the Clara Barton Muse Museum, I've had the good fortune to, to, to visit that. I kind of 
uh, was walking through downtown Washington one day, kind of aimlessly. I think I was visiting Ford's Theater, and I may have been over at the National Archives. And I kind of stumbled upon uh, the museum there. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how the museum came about, because it's really an interesting story. And then I want you to tell us about uh, how you got into uh, this field and how you became the director of interpretation at the Clara Barton Museum in Washington. Yeah, so it is, um, the museum itself is, is one of the, it's a true gem. Uh, it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing place. Uh, it's, we are very lucky to have it. Uh, it's very close to being lost, uh, forgotten, uh, torn down uh, in the 1990s and a, a really almost miraculous rediscovery of, of the building's history took place. Uh, allowed the, the circumstances that led to it opening as a museum in 2015. The building itself uh, is located on 7th Street in, in downtown Washington, 7th Street Northwest. Uh, it's about two blocks north of the National Archives uh, and Pennsylvania Avenue, right along 7th Street, which was during the Civil War era, uh, arguably the most important north-south road through the city of Washington. Uh, went from the city docks on the Anacostia River all the way up into Maryland, um, up towards uh, where Fort Stevens is eventually actually constructed, basically right on Seventh on the Seventh Street Road, heading out of the city, um, and uh, during during the war, and uh, and Clara Barton moved into uh, this building, which was a boarding house. So the third floor was used as a boarding house. She moved in in 1861 and stayed there until 1868. And in that time, she went from being an average American citizen, uh, a teacher, a former teacher, and a, a government employee. She worked on and off at the United States Patent Office here in Washington. And uh, when the Civil War broke out, she ends up taking kind of taking up a ca the cause of helping Union soldiers. And so she begins gathering supplies for soldiers in her boarding house room and distributing them in the army camps, uh, medical supplies, food, she mends socks. She helps soldiers in, in any way that she can uh, while also working full time at the patent office. Uh, then in 1862, uh, she kind of has an epiphany and realizes that if she really wants to help soldiers, uh, she can only do so much in the city of Washington. Uh, she needs to go out to the Army itself. And so in 1862, she starts traveling uh, to the sites of battles uh, in Virginia. And then in Maryland, on September 17, 1862, at the Battle of Antietam, she's actually on the battlefield itself as the battle is raging, uh, carries three wagons full of supplies up to Antietam, is in one of the hospitals very close to the battle line, uh, so close that a bullet almost hits her and, and instead hits a wounded soldier she was helping, uh, kills him instantly, basically in her arm. Um, she earns the nickname at Antietam of Angel of the Battlefield for her work, um, which gives her some recognition. Uh, she gets a uh, story about her gets published in Northern newspapers. And, uh, and so Barton becomes kind of known as the Angel of the Battlefield. And uh, most importantly, uh, it kind of sets the stage for her next, uh, her next career um, so through the rest of the Civil War, she's a, she's a volunteer nurse, she's a relief worker, an organizer, she's helping soldiers from Maryland and Virginia all the way down to South Carolina and Georgia. And then in 1865, as the war is dragging, dragging on to a close, Barton's job has kind of come to a, 
come to an end um, as a as a relief worker and a nurse. And uh, but she, over the course of the war, had been collecting information uh, in search of missing soldiers, families uh, and and friends of missing soldiers knew that she had been on the battle lines, had been at, at the front, uh, and in the hospitals, and so she may have come across their loved ones. And so she kind of kept a record of that in her diary. Uh, but at war's end, she's in Annapolis, Maryland at Camp Parole, where Union prisoners of war were being brought back into Union lines, and these men were in awful condition. Um, photos of, of, of those guys are really hard, really hard to look at, skin and bone, and ravaged by disease and malnutrition. And, uh, but what Barton was really really touched by and really troubled by uh, were the stories of how many prisoners had died in, in camps in the South, uh, like Andersonville, Florence, Southbury, North Carolina. And so Barton realizes as she's learning of these horrendous death tolls, as she learns that the, uh, there is no system of notification for these Northern families. And so at Andersonville alone, it's nearly 13,000 dead. And that's 13,000 Northern families who have no idea what has happened to their loved ones. And so she steps up and decides to open a, a missing soldier's office, gets approval from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, after his assassination, she gets approval to continue the work by Andrew Johnson. She carries that work on from 1865 until 1868, uh, right in her boarding house that she turns into uh, her boarding house room that she rented. She ends up renting out the entire boarding house uh, opening a, a full missing soldier's office with a team of clerks. Uh, and and uh, in three years' time, they received 63,000 letters from families. That's uh, more than 100 letters a day coming in and out of that office. And her and her team find more than 22,000 missing soldiers. Um, it's really unlike any other operation during the Civil War. Uh, there's nothing to that scale. Uh, and she really is way ahead of her time. The Army... Uh, the U.S. Army is, is not really going to get interested in, in this idea of identifying the dead and ensuring proper care for the dead uh, until you get to the Spanish-American War. And really, World War I is when they really get focused on, on things like graves registration, uh, making sure that soldiers have identification, so that they can be identified on the battlefield, and so that their families can be notified. Barton was way ahead of the game on this. Um, she's working in the years right after the Civil War to try to reunite families with with their loved ones, uh, with their loved ones' remains, or just simply with the story of what happened to their loved ones on the battlefield and in the prison camp of the war. And so Martin does that um, work with the Missing Soldiers Office for about three years. Then she uh, is exhausted physically, mentally, emotionally, goes off for a vacation in Europe and learns about the Red Cross, and uh, that will be her next project. Um, and so all of the lessons she learned during the Civil War uh, lessons she learned while running and administering the missing soldiers office all get funneled into her starting the American chapter of the Red Cross in the early 1880s uh, and running that organization until um, 1904. And, uh, and so she becomes America's foremost humanitarian, uh, one of the world's foremost humanitarians, and all of that work, all of that, uh, all of the skills, the lessons she learned, all of that starts back at the boarding house on 7th Street in Washington. Uh, the building itself uh, was nearly, uh, it was forgotten to history that it was where Clara Barton lived and worked. Um, the loss of living memory in the early 20th century, Barton died in 1912. 
Um, other acquaintances passed away around the same time. The space itself was boarded up in the 19-teens and forgotten until 1996. As the building is being uh, prepared for sale and likely demolition, uh, a government uh, carpenter named Richard Lyons uh, went into the space, uh, uh, felt a tap <laughs> on his shoulder. There, there was no one there, um, but he happened to see a, a yellowed envelope sticking out between these uh, uh, wallboards in this abandoned third-story uh, apartment um, on set overlooking 7th Street. And uh, he climbs up a ladder and uh, takes down this envelope and, and sees this big hole in the mm. ceiling and is kind of intrigued as to where this letter came from. And so he sticks his hand into this hole in an abandoned building in Washington, <laughs> uh, doing something I would never do, uh, and pulls out a sign that says, Missing Soldier's Office, Miss Clara Barton, and, uh, and found more than a thousand Civil War era artifacts uh. stuffed into the attic of this building and kind of you know, reopened, uh, reopened this building's history that had been forgotten for more than a century. And, uh, and his work, uh, he, he became an advocate for the space and an advocate for, for Clara Barton's story. And uh, Richard helped to save the building um, and make sure that it wasn't, it wasn't torn down, that it was saved uh, for future generations as a museum. And that is one of the biggest. most amazing stories. And I know when I visited, the interpreters there told me all about it. And, and speaking of the museum today, Jake, two questions. One, what, what the heck does a yeah. director of interpretation do? What is your, what, what is your job? How do you, <laughs> what do you, what do you do? So I describe it as I'm in charge of the history, <laughs> which is a, which is a, uh, a, a gross oversimplification. Um, so it, it, we are a small institution. Um, we have a full-time staff of, I believe, right around 10 or 12, um, running three, three museums scattered over a pretty wide geographic area. Um, my role is kind of always in flux, um, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about some opportunities we have coming up. Um, as, of, as it stands right now, um, helping to, uh, my role is to uh, oversee kind of the how we interpret the history at, at all three of the sites. So um, looking at uh, changing up our tours because we're, we're working on, uh, you know, making a better visitor experience for, for folks coming to all three of our sites, uh, making sure that we're, we're using the, the most cutting edge research um, that's out there in the field. So much great research is being done uh, in the field. Um, and that Civil War medicine, especially Civil War medicine, feels like it's really having a moment where it's getting a lot of attention and there's a lot of great scholarship out there. And my role is to help bring that into our, our interpretation at the museum. So how we tell our stories and make sure that uh, we're telling these stories in ways that are both interesting to our visitors, but also make sure that they are really um, connected to a lot of the scholarship that's going on in the world and make sure that we, we're up to date with, with what's going on. Um, but the big thing that I'm going to be um, kind of taking on in the next um, year uh, to, to five years um, is uh, we are going, within the next year, going to be working on our, um, one of the organization's first interpretive plans. And that is going to be looking at uh, overhauling how we, how we do our job, um, how we tell the story of Civil War medicine, how we tell the story of Clara Barton, how we tell the story of the Pry House and the battlefield medicine that took place there. 
Um, we will be, I'll be completely honest, uh, you know, the museum uh, in Frederick, Maryland was laid out in 2000 and 2001. Um, the interpretation there, um, the museum itself, the infrastructure there has not changed much in, in nearly 20 years. Um, the Pry House opened in 2005, um, kind of a similar situation, and the, Pry and the Missing Soldiers Office opened in 2015, um, kind of uh, was, was a, you know, we wanted to get the place open as soon as possible, and so um, there's still a lot of, of potential there um, that needs to really be, be realized. Um, and so that is kind of my, uh, my role for the next couple of years will be to assist in, in creating and crafting an interpretive plan that will guide a possible overhaul of some of our exhibits, um, to re-examine how we do our tours, um, how we interpret the story, um, and make sure that, uh, you know, as we're moving forward for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, um, that we are in a place where um, we're evolving, um, that our interpretation of the Civil War and Civil War medical care is, is staying up uh, with the, the, the new research that's being done, um, and make sure that we're not stale, uh, make sure that, you know, we are giving visitors the best experience, but we're also giving them the experience that ties it uh, to events that are going on today, and making us realize how things are, are really, Civil War medicine, while it happened 155 years ago, um, and we think of it as very archaic and, and outdated and what the heck were they doing, so many amputations for, that sort of thing, uh, is to really draw the connections to say that, you know, while it was 155 years ago, a lot of the basic tenants are the same. Um, and the surgeons and nurses of the Civil War and the, and the veterans of the Civil War dealt with a lot of the same issues we are still grappling with today. Uh, things like opiate addiction, uh, huge crisis in the aftermath of the Civil War around addiction, both in terms of opiates, but also in alcohol, uh, with the soldiers, how do you deal with long-term care? Um, there is so much relevance between the Civil War and our own time. And that's what we have found that visitors really engage with. And we want to ensure that, that we're providing those kinds of connections so people walk away from our museum, not just being like, wow, that was an interesting thing. I didn't think about Civil War medicine before, um, but really walking away saying, wow, I really learned a lot from that, and I can draw those kinds of, kinds of connections into my own life, um, into, my own, uh, into my own world, and understand, have a little bit of a better uh, basis in the, in the history, um, so that they can, when they're going about their daily life, that, uh, you know, things like how did they mm -hmm. use tourniquets during the Civil War, and, and how the evolution of trauma medicine um, really dates back to the Civil War. Um, that's when it first really becomes modern. Um, and so, you know, there's so many things like that that, that you know, go into, into my role. It's a, it's a tall order. Um, it's a big job. Um, I'm still a young, young professional um, and, uh, and, and just cutting my teeth in this. But it's such a great opportunity for this institution uh, to really, you know, make sure that we are doing the best job that we can to, to tell this incredible story. Jake, it really is an incredible Jake, I'm sorry. Story. Jake, um, Jake, briefly, yeah. before we go into your other endeavors, a visitor goes to the Clara Barton Museum. What, what, does, what do they see there when you go in? Tell us, tell us what the experience is like. Yeah, so at the Missing Soldiers Office, um, we do guided tours of the space. Uh, so uh, basically, you come in as a visitor, you walk in uh, to our visitor center, which is on street level on 7th Street, um, near the intersection of 7th and E. 
Um, and you walk in and you are going to be greeted with a beautiful new mural that was just completed within the last, uh, last couple of months uh, in, in early 2019 um, that depicts Clara Barton's life while she lived in the boarding house on 7th Street. Uh, you come in and uh, we have a orientation film that we show visitors when they come in. Uh, but then the way you actually see the museum itself is on a guided tour. Uh, we do those guided tours now um, every hour um, on uh, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Uh, tours start at 11.30, uh, 12.30, 1.30, and so on until 4.30 is the final tour. Um, you go upstairs, you walk up the historic 19th century staircase that Clara Barton used to go in and out of the building during the Civil War era. And uh, you enter into the 19th century. You go into this restored 19th century boarding house uh, where Clara Barton lived and worked. Uh, there's some interpre interpretation, some stories and things written um, about Barton and, and life at that boarding house. Um, but by and large, it's empty. The, the space is empty. There are um, a number of cases that include things that were found in the space uh, that belonged to Barton and other people that lived in the building. Um, but we put a high emphasis on storytelling. Um, our interpreters, our, our guides, um, both staff and, and volunteer, uh, we, we tell the story in, in a uh, way that uh, we want to really engage with people and, and talk about, you know, the, the importance of history and historic preservation and what gets saved and how this, the story of this incredible woman uh, was forgotten uh, to history. This, this building, this, this key part, key place in the story of Clara Barton, the angel of the battlefield and uh, founder of the Red Cross, how this space had been lost to history and how uh, the incredible story of its rediscovery. Um, and so those tours usually go on for about uh, uh, 45 minutes to an hour in the space. And then you have some time to explore on your own, which is, is wonderful up there. You get to walk through this, this space. It's kind of like, a, I described my first visit there as wow. a pseudo-religious experience. Um, you walk in, <laughs> communing with the past. Uh, you can sense that there was some, you know, some things and some important things happened here. And, uh, you know, the, the connection to Clara Barton feels very tangible when you're in that space, even though. Uh, there aren't, you know, all that many artifacts that are actually in the space. It is pretty much an empty building, um, but the stories really come to life. It is indeed those, like uh, stepping back parts. into time. And just to orient people, many people go, many people who are uh, into history, like obviously you are and I am, when they go to Washington, they're going to see Ford's Theater, or they may go to the White House. So just orient the listeners, Jake, how close is, is the Clara Barton Museum? Missing Soldier's Office to Ford's Theater. How close is it to the uh, the White House? Yeah, so it is about, uh, it's three blocks from Ford's Theater. Um, so Clara Barton lives three blocks from Ford's Theater. She was actually uh, in, in Washington the night of the assassination. She was on her way back home uh, from a party uh, when she heard that Lincoln had been shot on April 14th, 1865. Uh, the next day in her diary, which was in her diary entry, which was written in the, in the boarding house, uh, she wrote um, one of the most moving entries I think I, I, I've seen in her diary. Um, she wrote, uh, no one knows what to do after she wrote down that the president had died at mm. 722 in the morning. Uh, I, was, I always find that so poignant because I think we've all been there in those moments of national tragedy. Um, but we're three blocks from Ford Theater, so it's very accessible, very easy to get there, an easy walk. 
Um, and we're about a, I would say, half mile, three quarters of a mile from the White House. Um, that's, that's not too far away either. Um, the 7th Street is pretty much equidistant um, between, it's, it's smack dab in the middle between the Capitol and the White House. So if you come to the, come to the missing soldier's office, you're going to be smack dab in the middle um, between, uh, between those two, uh, two sites. And you'll be uh, very close to the National Mall, very close to the National Archives. Um, we're very accessible via Metro as well. So if you're taking the train into the city, um, we're very close to the Gallery Place Chinatown Metro Station as well as and, the and Archives Jake, Metro Station. And Jake, again, is there an admission fee to the museum? Yes, we do have a, an admission fee for the guided tour. Um, and that, uh, that is $9.50 for adults, uh, $8.50 for seniors. Uh, military and um, and seven dollars for students, and that's students uh, from you know the little little ones on up to uh, on up to college students, um, and then Got kids you. nine and under. All right, so three. Jake, in addition to your day jobs, plural, with the medical museum in <laughs> Frederick, the Pry House at, in Sharpsburg, and the Clara Barton Museum in Washington, you recently launched a very intriguing blog and I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Mount Lebanon, which is a suburb uh, about six miles South of Pittsburgh. And Jake is from Eastern Pennsylvania. And I was actually born in Allentown, Jake. So I'm some, so I have Eastern Pennsylvania okay. in my blood too. Uh, tasty cakes and <laughs> a treat soda from Allentown were two of my favorite uh, they were delicacies growing up as a kid. We used to go, I used to, we lived in Philadelphia briefly and used to travel up, I think it was 309 up to Allentown and always relished drinking mm-hmm. orange A-treat soda and having the tasty cakes. So I have an affinity for Eastern Pennsylvania. And I know you're from where oh, yeah. I grew up in a little town called Williamstown, um, which is not to be confused with Williamsport, which is a much larger city in uh, northern central Pennsylvania. Williamstown has about a thousand residents. Um, it's uh, just north of Harrisburg, just west of Pottsville. So um, south central Pennsylvania, the very southwest edge of what's known as uh, Pennsylvania's coal region, um, which is a you know band of Northeastern Pennsylvania runs from basically from my town all the way up through Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, where they mined coal. And for our listeners, Jake has his winning W-Y-N-N-I-N-G, winning history blog, frequently writes about uh, coal mine, the history of coal mining, coal mining issues on his blog. And I have an interest in that because my grandfather was a uh, coal miner uh, in eastern Pennsylvania. And eastern Pennsylvania, that was hard coal, right? Uh, not soft coal. So oh, yeah. on his blog, his winning history blog, he, in addition to writing about uh, many hu- human interest stories from the Civil War, also writes about uh, kind of the history of coal mining, other uh, interesting tales from the area where he grew up. And you also launched this Pennsylvania in the Civil War blog, along with three other uh, young historians. So why don't you tell us about that and what you're aiming to do with that? 
Yeah, so this is a project, um, Penn Civil War, uh, we're calling it, um, you know, Pennsylvanian Civil War blog, Penn Civil War for short. Um, you know, we've, we're a group of young historians um, that kind of got together, uh, you know, in the last, in the last, you know, that's six months, um, early 2019. And we've all been, we all have our own individual brands. So we all have our own little projects. So um, I have winning history, uh, and of course work at the work at these different Civil War museums. Um, you have Rich, who does Civil War Pittsburgh, um, and and does a fantastic job with that. And then we have uh, um, Kendrick, who does Keystoners in Union Blue. He has his own Facebook page where he talks about uh, kind of Southern Pennsylvania, uh, York County specifically, Cumberland County, Adams County, um, and uh, he lives in the Richmond area um, and. Uh, uh, has has you know lots of great uh, takes us around to different battlefields down there, and then we have Cody, um, our Gettysburg man, um, who has his own Facebook page, who does some some fantastic work, um, working some Photoshop and doing uh, you know finding some great quotes from folks like Frederick Douglass, but also with a focus on Gettysburg and the legacy of of the battle as well as the battle's impact on the on the landscape. And so we bring each of us brings a different kind of lens to. Um, to the Civil War, um, and we all have an interest. We all grew up in Pennsylvania or, or had family that came from Pennsylvania and, uh, and are very interested in, in the Civil War stories there. Um, and, and the project, its scope is really just telling all different kinds of stories about Pennsylvania and the Civil War, and not just military stories, but also uh, the impact of the war on culture, on society, um, some of the uh, other elements that we're going to be talking about moving forward, we're going to be starting to open up for some guest contributors as well. So it won't just be the four of us. We'll also be opening up for, uh, for other historians, um, uh, academic and public historians, uh, to come in and, and use our, our site as kind of a way to, uh, you know, to get their work out into the world. And so we're looking at not only telling, of course, the military story, but also looking at um, issues of, you know, the coming of the Civil War and, and how Pennsylvania was really situated um, during the years in the run-up to the war, uh, freedom and equality, reconstruction, um, impacts on the African-American community in Pennsylvania, um, all of these different aspects uh, we're really looking forward to, to diving into. Uh, my personal, um, you know, uh, kind of stories of choice uh, that I'm going to be hoping to tell more about um, uh, come from the area that I grew up in, in northeastern Pennsylvania, which was a bastion of, um, of anti-war uh, violence, uh, anti-war advocacy um, during, during the conflict um, that flared up into some very fascinating and violent um, episodes um, in 1862, 1863, and 1864 um, that uh, had some really long-standing implications on labor history in the United States. Um, well after the Civil War. Um, and so uh, I'm looking forward to sharing more about that. And uh, I'm just excited about the whole project. And, and we're going to be doing some more Facebook Lives. Uh, we're going to be doing more events. Uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to continuing the work of Penn Civil That's War. That's outstanding. And, and Jake, more. in the newspaper business, which I used to be part of a long time. Now it's a long, it feels like a long time ago. Um, this is called Burying the Lead. <laughs> and could you briefly, briefly tell us how you got into doing what you're doing? 
Yeah, so um, I I went to um, always had an interest in history, um, dating back to when I was a little kid. Um, I can thank my parents, Sam and Carla, uh, for uh, taking me to historic sites as a kid um, in in the area that I grew up in. I have some favorite places up there, places like Pioneer Tunnel, and where I got an interest in the local history aspects and um, watched a lot of. Uh, Military, uh, military-related history movies as a kid, probably too young to watch, but uh, it's kind of fostered an interest in, in, in military history. Um, I'd say in terms of, uh, you know, my awareness in the world, I, I can't underestimate and understate the uh, importance of um, my awareness being built out of, of the world coming from the uh, aftermath of the September 11th attacks. Um, very influential on me as a kid, made me very aware of the world. I was in third grade. Oh, well, oh no. In third grade oh, on 9 no. Don't tell me that. <laughs> I always get people with that. Oh. I always get people with that. Um, but uh, I, became, uh, I became super conscious of the world and, and became interested in, in not only history and understanding why the world was the way it was, but uh, also in, in current events and, and journalism. And, and so when I went to college in, in 2011, uh, I went to Hood College in Frederick, Maryland. Um, I studied both history and communications. Um, I was wanted to actually went to school, wanted to be a journalist, um, and, and and to to tell these stories about what was going on in the world, and and to explore why that was going on, and uh, you know got a part time job at the Civil War Medicine Museum, and uh, that turned into a full time job, and uh, I was very fortunate um, to be able to blend my passions together, um, passion for for history, for military history. Um, learned a new passion for medical history, um, but then also was able to flex those communications muscles and do things like social media and public relations, um, but also drawing those modern parallels as well, the relevance to issues that we face today and how we can draw lessons upon the lessons from the past um, that might be able to, uh, to help us as we're trying to find solutions That's tremendous. to issues that we face. Today. Tell you what, Jake, before we wrap up here, uh, I am intru- I'm officially introducing a brand new segment here on John Banks' Civil War blog podcast. And we're going to call it, we don't have a sponsor for it yet, but we'll aim to get a sponsor down the road, uh, hopefully. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but we're going to call it five things. And I want to get some brief answers. Keep, keep your answers brief here uh, on five quick hit topics. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite Civil War movie and why? Ooh, I love Lincoln, um, the movie Lincoln. Um, and it just brings the era to life uh, in a way that I've not seen any other film really do. And I'm a lover of politics uh, and political history. And uh, I, I think that Spielberg did a masterful job of bringing uh, that important moment, 1865 and, and Battle Over Emancipation to life. And Daniel Day-Lewis, one of my favorite actors, just... Oh, he embodied Lincoln. Favorite so Civil much. War general? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I love John Sedwick. Uh, okay. I'm a Sixth Corps guy. So uh, I'd have to go with, Uncle John. To go with uh, that's a good one. John Sedwick. Favorite battlefield? Yep. And Why is that? Without a doubt. Uh, ever since I first went there as a teenager, I just found it to be, uh, just 
it, it's so quiet and it's so similar because of the preservation work, so similar to what it looked like back in 1862. They've done such an amazing job of restoring it. Uh, I just find it to be a very poignant place, a very, um, you know, you, you can, it's like the missing soldiers office. You can sense awesome. the history when you're there. Battlefield you'd most like to visit that you haven't seen yet. Ooh, I think oh, you named it tremendous. earlier. I want to go to Chickamauga. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I, I, this, I live um, uh, in, in downtown DC. I live less than a block away from, uh, from Thomas Circle, where George Thomas's statue um, kind of holds forth looking down towards the White House. So uh, I feel like I need to go see where you're in that. Uh, oh, I love that. That's Rocky tremendous. And the final question, Jake, I am shamelessly, shamelessly stealing this from uh, the Civil War talk radio host, Gerald Prokopovich. And hopefully I, I pronounced his name correctly. I have Slovak in my background and I should, I should, really, I should really be able to, <laughs> to, to pronounce that correctly. Who, if you could go back into a Civil War time machine and be someone, who would, who would, you, who would you like – and go talk to them. Who would, you, who would you like to talk to? Who, who would I like to go talk to? That is a great, great question. Um, well, as a, as a Pennsylvania guy, I feel like – I, I really would want to go, and uh, I, I think Andrew Curtin, the governor, wartime governor of Pennsylvania, is just so crucial to, to the state's history, and he has so much to do with both the Antietam campaign and his panic during that campaign and, and during the Gettysburg campaign. I think I would go back, and, and it may sound crazy to people, of all the interesting people in the Civil War, but you know, I, I would go and have a conversation. I don't think you can Andrew go Curtin. wrong there. It's always good to get a, talk to another fellow Pennsylvanian. So I think that's a very good choice. I, I might have some questions for him too. I think that think that would be excellent. Yeah. Well, Jake, I want to thank you for being on episode two of John Banks' Civil War podcast. I wish I had a gift to give you, but I will send you in the mail a uh, an envelope full of gratitude. So you might take the envelope and maybe put it on your refrigerator there in uh Jake Wynn's headquarters somewhere in Virginia, I believe, right? Or is it, you're in D.C. In no, D.C. I want to thank yeah. you very much for, for being a guinea pig for five things. And again, Jake is the director of interpretation at the Clara Barton Museum in Washington, which is uh, the umbrella. Explain that, how that works one more time, Jake. You have those satellite museums also. Yes, so uh, all, we have three sites operated by the National Museum of Civil War Medicine out of Frederick. Uh, those, uh, there's that museum, uh, the Clara Barton Missing Soldiers Office Museum in D.C., which is where I'm stationed, and then the Pry House Field Hospital Museum. Excellent, Washington excellent. Well, Jake, thanks again. This has been terrific. And listeners out there, this is, again, episode two of John Banks' Civil War blog. We'll aim to have a guest on frequently. I'm not sure if we're going to do this every week or every other week or what the frequency is going to be, but you can count on it being uh, at least every two weeks, maybe much more frequently than that. The technology is quite easy, and I think, uh, think this will be great. Jake, you've been a great guest. Thank you very much, and we'll be talking to you down the road. Okay. Thanks Take so care. much for having me on, John.